Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. My guests today on The Art of Range are Cooper and Chase Hibbard, managers of the Seabin Livestock Company near Cascade, Montana. Cooper and Chase, welcome. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Good to be here. Yeah, Cooper, you mentioned a, a new model of ranching. I can think of several different ways that I might answer you know, what that new model looks like, but um, what are you describing? Are you thinking of more ways to generate revenue on a ranch than just calf sales, or um, what else are you thinking in terms of a new model for ranching? For us... It's, um, you know, 20 years ago, Uncle Chase and the crew and the team made the leap to change calving from February and March to calving what well, was then mid-May, and we've since moved it to June 10th as our due date. Wow. Um, and it's kind of following that similar, that was pretty well done for, for two reasons in my recollection. One was to better match our cows production cycle with the natural grass cycle of this ranch. And the second was to better match our enterprises with our natural resource base. And so we're, we're heavily weighted in the summer in our summer country. We have three zones, basically summer country, uh, our shoulder country, and then our winter zone and winter zone was our biggest bottleneck. That was, Mm -hmm. that was what um, really drove our stocking rate numbers or determined our stocking rate numbers. And so that switch, um, the winter zone also in- includes all of our hay ground. So that switch was made, um, to try and match our cows production cycle with our resource base too. And so when I'm saying a new model of ranching, it's really, uh, an extension of what was started 20 years ago of, of allowing mother nature to do more of the work and the cows to do more of the work um, in a way that where both are set up for success. And that's through uh, grazing management and through proper genetic selection, basically. And so from grazing management, um, what my personal belief is, is when possible, non-selective grazing is the best. And what I mean by non-selective grazing is in a very short duration where every single plant is affected to where every plant is put on a level playing field. And then what happens in that scenario when followed by a long period of rest, that's the other very important part of this equation is the plants with the deepest root systems and the largest leaf areas are the ones that outcompete in that scenario, which are your desirable species. And so you're, um, <clears throat> by doing non-selective grazing, we're able to increase our forage harvest rate because every single plant is affected and by how they're being grazed and the amount of the byproduct of, of that type of grazing is the amount of litter that's trampled down. And so you're building soil and you're able to capture and retain more water. And, and you're also by grazing in that manner, affecting your plant species composition because you're setting your desirable species up for success. Um, you're also increasing your forage production rate. Um, and we, we've seen that across the, the ranch in the winter zone 
on average, it's been a 200% increase in the last six years. And then in the shoulder zone is also 200%. And then summer country is 110% in six year time span is what we've seen on average. Um, and, but in order to do that properly, we need genetics that match this environment and have a high doability on grass, early sexual maturity rate, um, a good match for this type of environment. And so we're having to operate with a different type of selection criteria for our genetics. And so once you get your genetics right, which I see as another natural system to where it's not a linear, once you get something right, like with our grazing, it's not a, a linear increase. It's more of an exponential increase. Once the genetic genetics get, mm -hmm. once you get your genetics right and your grazing management right, because for a while there are grazing management outpaced our genetics and we're still at that point. Right. Um, the results are multiplicative instead of additive. Exactly. So yeah, that's a good way to put curve. it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and all of this comes, works together to where at the end of the day, we're effectively increasing our stocking rate in a way that is sustainable to every single leg of the stool that Uncle Chase was referring to. Mm -hmm. um, and an increased stocking rate, well, we're, we're allowing our, we're putting the foundation in place to generate more revenue. And so the economic resiliency comes into play. And that's what needs mm -hmm. to happen from um, <clears throat> the fragility of, from a market standpoint, from um, the climate here at the ranch, we have a weather station and from 1980 to 2000 average precip was 22 and a half inches. And from 2000 to present day, it's 16 mm. inches. Um, so dealing, building the resiliency in place from the soil up and through our cattle as well to, you know, we've had record setting years in both ends of the spectrum and in the last four years, mm -hmm. multiple times. So dealing with these pretty wide swings, we're, we're just trying to stay on the front end of that to where we can continue to be productive and we can grow more with less and we can still generate not just revenue, but a, a very robust amount of revenue. I, I hope to get to that point, um, no, no matter what curveballs are thrown. That's what I see as being the new model of just this, and I, this really resilient ranching operation. I, resiliency is another watered down term, but it is I it is, um, I think very important for what we do. Yeah, I think it's a useful one. I was going to ask you about rules of thumb. You know, this is one of those things that people either love or hate. Um, you know, it sounds like one of the rules of thumb that is common to most uh, ranches that have that kind of resiliency is to not, don't take it all. Uh, one of the, something else Wendy Berry, Wendell Berry wrote in the book Jaber Crow, he's describing uh, a, a farmer, you know, before the era of fertilizer. Uh, who he says he was always studying his fields, thinking of ways to protect them. He was improving his land, intending to leave it better than he found it. His principle was always to maintain a generous margin of surplus between the fertility of his land and his demands upon it. 
Wherever he, wherever I look, he said, I want to see more than I need and have more than I use. Um, this idea of not taking it all so that, you know, if something goes wrong with the rainfall in a given year, you've got something to fall back on. Uh, w- would you say that that kind of concept of not using everything every year is one of the important rules of thumb? Or, and, you know, what other rules of thumb uh, would you say you use or principles in terms of how to manage grazing? Um, it, in this environment, I think not using everything every year is is prudent, and that's something that Uncle Chase has had in place since the 1980s with the guest gourmet rest mm-hmm. rotation system. And so in our summer country at any given year, one-third of it will go untouched, basically. Um, and then it's about 20% in the winter. and Meaning one-third of the acres don't get grazed at all? At all. Yeah. Yeah, they'll have a full year rest. We have a... We have a rest rotation framework, uh, a classic Gus Hormay rest rotation framework, within which Cooper practices uh, high intensity, short duration grazing mm-hmm. all year long. Inside of the rest rotation Inside framework. Inside the rest rotation yeah. framework. Yeah. And so we're, some would argue we're over resting. And, you know, I don't know whether we are or not, um, but it's certainly. Uh, we are guaranteeing that we a third of the range. Well, actually, it's right. more than a third during the growing season. It's it's two thirds because you don't you don't um, because of the treatments of rest rotation. Um, so it's it's more than a third. But by being in the rest rotation context, there's also the benefit of of that's that's a prerequisite for um, for um, a lot for your cattle to graze on fish life, wildlife and parks hmm. ground. And so um, we have a huge super lease put together with FWP where we, we graze um, um, much of their game range, which is adjacent um, for the benefit. Well, it's for, for our obvious benefit, but the cattle grazing, the way we're doing it, um, high intensity, short duration, um, within the rest rotation overall framework, um, allows us to to have this lease, which is also improving the uh, the range f- mm-hmm. for elk habitat, and you know much of our range on private land goes ungrazed, grazed a third of it a year, and two-thirds of it through much of the year, um, which is also habitat for the elk that don't, don't know the boundaries. So uh, there, there are additional benefits that have accrued by by the, the grazing structure that we have. Yeah. I feel like I've got more questions piled up in my head right now that I can keep track of. But I want to come back to uh, how the how your interaction with guests will make came about. But first, I want to ask the question that I'm afraid I will forget, uh, which is how are you applying, uh, you know, what you're calling short duration, high density in a rangeland setting? Because a lot of people would say, I mean, I work with pretty similar environments in Washington state and and, uh, to a lesser degree in Oregon, where the, you know, the, the potential profit on the landscape through livestock doesn't justify installing a lot of infrastructure 
which a lot of people would feel is necessary to apply that kind of uh, short duration high density. And further, there's not enough water, you know, to get around to do that. Uh, so what a lot what a lot of successful ranchers are doing, uh, I say successful because I think they have the long-term high rangeland health, you know, or some modification of short duration. So a short duration, you know, a two-hour grazing period, or is it a two-week grazing period? You know, in my mind, on a lot of rangelands, two weeks would be considered short duration and higher density for sure than what had been done historically. Uh, and that does seem to work pretty well, you know, where the, the grazing period in a given, say, a 5,000-acre pasture, uh, you know, might be three weeks. And then they don't come back to that until the next year, preferably at a different time of year than they were there this year. That's just one example. What does that look like uh, on on this place? Um, so in the in the winter country, short in the winter zone, where our what we call our mob, our four years old, four year olds and up, are currently there. It's one day grazes, uh, running a density of about a hundred cows to an acre for one day, and um, in the shoulder zone, it'll be more like three day grazes. And this is utilizing a bunch of poly wire. Now keep it, we do have, mm -hmm. we're just, there's, we have a lot of live water everywhere. And the places that we don't have live water, we have um, plans for or have put in uh, pretty big water projects because now we know, which I'll get to this point here in a bit, the economics of what actually grazing like this means now and um, we can't afford not to graze like this um, and then in the summer country the longest graze period um well that's longest graze period would be about a month long and that'd be on a forest service allotment where you mm -hmm. there aren't any options basically um shortest graze period would be two days and the average graze period i would say would be about five um, our, so that's from everything from all of our yearling groups. We'll have anywhere from three to four different yearling groups and then two to three different mother cow groups, um, kept separate, kept separate. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, so to flesh that out a little bit more of how, how we landed on that when I came home eight years ago. Well, when we first started winter grazing, the average graze period was seven days. When I came home eight years ago, it was four, four and a half days grace period in the winter. Um, and then we're now at one day grace periods. And what we saw, m much like what we're talking about of how it wasn't really a linear relationship, it was exponential. Where when we went from four and a half day grace periods to two day grace periods, our uh, forage harvest rate increased about 30%. And then from two days to one days or four day to one day, it was double. And, and our cattle are better off. Our animal performance is higher. The ground is, is better affected. 
it's less labor. It's a win-win-win across the board. And so after doing that for years and, and incrementally getting to that point, we could safely push a pencil and say, this is what this is worth to us. Right. And this happened, I had this epiphany about four years ago where it's just like, we can't afford not to do this. This is, we, we have to get this dialed in because of the, the, what it means financially and, and getting this dialed in just from a short-term perspective, let alone the long-term perspective of building our, our soil and, and changing our plant species composition for the better. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So on those short grazes, you're managing that by keeping animals in a, in a specific area using herding or mostly with electric fence? Mostly with polywire. Yeah. We, we will place animals sometimes, um, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. Uh, never with day in, day out herding. Yeah. Um, it's mostly all with polywire and all of our cattle are very well trained to polywire. And, you know, on these one day grazes, we'll start at a water point and we'll move away from that water point and say like a, be a seven or 10 day increment where they're back trailing over what they'd grazed. But since they would graze it in, in a one day time frame or time period, that soil, that ground is so soiled they won't really backpick that you know because the density was so high and then in the summer country we're really um, limited by our terrain um, there's only so much that we can do because we run yeah. in some pretty rough country and also we're we're fairly sensitive to uh, the cow we we lessen up on the grazing density on the front end of calving yeah, you know, give them enough space to help cultivate that mothering instinct. And, well. Yeah, the, the critics of rotational grazing would say that uh, if you're applying that kind of density, you're lowering the plane of nutrition the cows are receiving because you're forcing them to eat a quality of food that they might not otherwise, and and then there could be some production losses from that. Well, I would say, if I'm being the devil's advocate to the critic of rotational grazing, that uh, that only wor- that only applies if you're grazing down quite a ways into the plant canopy. You know, if if they're if the animals are moving fast enough that they're mostly um, high grading a plant community, they're still getting that higher plane of nutrition. And then you would probably say that if your genetics allow for an animal, you know, to maintain body condition and breed back with access to this kind of ground mm-hmm. and where they're not having to be uh, cherry picking the plant community mm-hmm. that also makes it sustainable but you know how would you answer the critic who says yeah that's all fine and dandy to say that you're going to concentrate the animals and force them onto force some big stuff that they might not otherwise but that is going to result in poorer cow performance um it can result in poor cow performance. That's without a doubt, um, and that's a that's a really hard line to walk, and has been for us. You know, it's it's a fairly tenuous relationship between animal performance and and ecological performance. Uh, but I I don't I think that that that's true. But I also think that that is false when done correctly, and also when getting your genetics right. Um, but to your, to your point, you can actually do rotational grazing and increase animal performance because when, when done in that manner and with that 
end goal in mind and you're on moving on fresh feed and if they're just high grading the feed that's the best that's the absolutely best thing you could do for animal performance that's taking that's taking into consideration or, or assuming that they're being handled well if they're not being handled well and they're getting moved five times more than they normally would have been and it's an, extremely stressful then mm. no matter what animal You're performance is going to be gains. yeah animal yeah. performance is going to be tank yeah yeah we might have to do a, a separate podcast episode to talk about stockmanship and maybe we can rope in wit but yeah he and i were together at a workshop in northern washington a couple of years ago maybe three or four years ago mm -hmm. so we met there but you know we'll have to come back to that one uh yeah, back to the question about Gus Formay. How did that relationship come about? Yeah, that's, that's a great story. Um, kind of backed into it in a way because um, Dad had worked for years to with FWP to try to incorporate the game range into into our animal grazing, and then uh, so I picked up where he let off, and and um, there was a wildlife manager at FWP, that's Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, um, named Joe Egan, who um, was probably early in his career was about as anti-landowner as, as you could ever hope to, to find. And somehow he uh, became enamored with Gus Hormay. Joe Egan became enamored with Gus Hormay hmm. and um, just completely understood what Gus was preaching and started to envision um, the benefits that um, grazing properly um, with the Hormay method could have for game ranges, um, freshening up feed and, and um, um, creating new plant growth and, and um, improving the forage base for, for elk. And so, um, all of a sudden after dad was gone and, you know, I was trying to fill some pretty big shoes and geez, dad always wanted to graze the game range. And, you know, this, this Joe Egan guy seems to be a pretty good guy. <laughs> so, um, started working with, with Joe Egan and, and, um, you did. Yes. Yeah. And, um, we brought up Gus Hormay and, and um, we rattled around in a pickup for two or three days around this ranch. And Gus was in his 80s at the time. I think this is the last big mm -hmm. job he did. And Gus got real interested and real motivated and, and uh, drew all these intricate, intricate, huge maps of all colors, different colors, and every little tributary of every stream. And, mm -hmm. and it, it's just, they're, they're pieces of beauty. And, um, Spent lots of time with him, and and I, I you know, became a, a real admirer of what he was preaching, and and um, could see how it could definitely work 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 well for us. And um, Joe Egan from FWP was equally impressed, and we all yeah. got our heads together, and and um, the game range part of it happened under the stipulation that that it's in rest rotation, and so. Um, it was like like 4,500 acres, the game range, roughly. Mm -hmm. yep. 
And then we put in another several thousand, you know, 10,000, 12,000 of ours in a big major three pasture rest rotation, classic Hormang three pasture rest rotation in the heart of our, of our summer grazing. And, uh, game range was a prominent part of, of that. Mm-hmm. And, um, then from there, branched out, put one on our forest allotment. And then um, so a, a large percentage of our summer grazing um, went into rest rotation early on, mid-80s. And it uh, we got we got accustomed to it. We, you know, we got it, it worked well. And uh, then um, set a great framework for, I mean, this was kind of a, this kind of took us to the moon and then along comes Cooper and we're on our way to Venus. <laughs> you know, we're just, we're growing, we're growing on what started as, as the crude right. rest rotation. And remember an adage at the time um, that both rest rotation grazing and short duration high density grazing will get you to the same place. One's a Model T and the other one's a Ferrari. Um, Three pasture rest rotation is a Model T. Um, short duration, high density grazing is the Ferrari. Yeah. Um, the Model T you can fix with your with your Crescent wrench. Right. If you have a wreck with the Ferrari, it's a real wreck. Yeah. <laughs> and so we've tried to tried to melt the two. And um, if we have a wreck now on that Ferrari, it's within the rest rotation context, so it's mitigated. Right. And we also have a lot of built-in additional rest because we're in the rest rotation context. Yeah. And I'm putting words in Cooper's mouth, but I, I would guess that he might say that we would not have rest rotation. We would do it all with high-density, short-duration grazing. But if we're going to graze FWP ground, that's not, that's not in the cards. Mm-hmm. So the buffer is if you, if you manage... Uh, the the time a little bit wrong on a piece this year and feel like you hit it too hard, you've got some buffer because you could well, not use that for an entire year. Exactly. With uh, under the rest rotation context is is you know the three treatments are graze, graze after seed ripe, yeah, and full rest. Full rest, yeah. And and so um, during the growing season. Two thirds of any given area are rested, and so that's that's a huge amount of rest. Right, and you know all of it is rested all year, but during the growing season, two thirds is 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 rested. And so, um, if there's a wreck with high, high density, short duration, you've got a lot of recovery time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes even more than that because because we've with how we've been grazing, we have. Um, we basically need more cattle in order to continue to adhere to that restorative. We're there, our ground's been receiving more more rest than that, and in some places, the more productive places, it's it's too much rest. Really, like we, we actually we need more cattle, which is wonderful. Um, but there. Going back to the question you'd asked a while ago about the principles of should you always leave some, we're we're huge believers in that in 
trying to rest as many acres as possible during the growing season. Not just not just a third. I would I would say as many as possible during the growing season. Mm-hmm. And then um, if you're in a dire situation, then you have 30% more of the ranch to go to if you wanted to open up that other third, right? Which, which you'd get to right. post-growing season, um, in which case you'd be doing ne- negligible damage if you were to go to it because it was already post-seed right, basically. Uh, who are you still grazing that game range? And I assume it's not restricted anymore. Well, we've enlarged that times four. That's the largest super lease in the state. Hmm. With a sixteen thousand acres. About that, yeah. yeah. Super lease meaning multiple agencies or no. large, M- multiple different blocks within the game range, okay. tied together under the same lease, right? And and it's and it's really written and managed from a um, watershed standpoint. Kind of you're kind of not really paying attention to where the property boundaries lie. It's more of an area management plan. Yeah. So there's private, there's FWP, there's BLM and state lands. They're all involved in it. Yeah, I'm involved in some planning processes for similar, not quite checkerboard ownerships, but certainly, you know, multiple uh landowners where they're trying to manage one single piece under a under a a single geography under a single grazing plan but multiple owners working together yeah i really like that approach yeah now how would how would the evidently the game folks believe that that's still useful well apparently apparently you know i i think there's some I wouldn't say that everybody is completely um, on board with it 100%, but the proof, the proof, I believe the proof is in the pudding and the proof has been pretty persuasive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, proof yeah, being I'd say there's more. Quite, I, yeah, I mean, you could just go out and, and, yeah. and, and it's the, the, uh, the improvements are tangible. Right. You know there are some some uh, sore spots that were not caused by us. Uh, they were caused for years and years and years and years of it's you know it, it's a, the regular suspects. It's mm-hmm. lower elevations around water. You know years and years and years and years and years of continuous use, and so they're they're incorporated within the system. And you go look at that and say, oh my gosh, the system isn't working. Right. But that's an unfair assessment. Right. Um, I think they're probably better off under the system because of all the built-in rest and then the animal impact is properly timed. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to, it's hard, it's not, it's kind of counterintuitive because this is what you see. But, you know, the fact is that happened way before any of this was even right in anybody's mindset. And, yeah, uh, and it's legitimate to ask the question, you know, which direction is it going? Exactly. And, I like and to say we, people have this arbitrary oh, yeah. environmental quality scale in their head, and they yeah. see that spot, and they think, well, that's a six. Yeah. Well, you may know that it was at a two right. 30 years ago, yeah. and it's at a six today. Yeah. Then it's probably headed, you know, toward an eight, even if it's not sure. going to end up at a 10 under the current management. But right. the person who showed up four years ago says, well, it's a six. That's unacceptable. We right. need to have... Yeah. 
a better situation than that. But along those lines, too, we, we do have, we're doing, um, we've got a lot of range transects out that we're regular, regularly monitoring to keep track of, of what's happening. Chase, you were quoted in the Angus Beef Bulletin article back in 2003 as saying the difference between the neighbor's place and yours was like night and day. Uh, what do the neighbors think about what you're doing? Is it the same neighbor? Uh, did that neighbor ever read the article and get on your case about that? I forgot all about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still alive. I have all my limbs. <laughs> he probably didn't read it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, in hindsight, that wasn't a very nice thing to say. But, <laughs> but um, you know, I, I yeah, I, and I don't know how to, what I would say at this point. I mean, I think people are still raising their eyebrows a bit at what we're doing. But, you know, we've had several workshops and, Frankly, I think everybody's gone home um, understanding a little bit more about what we're doing, and and I, I get the feeling that they're they're supportive. Mm-hmm. You know, the the uh, the challenge is it's such a paradigm shift. You know, mm-hmm. you get so entrenched in a way of operation that works for you, and to make a, a change of this magnitude is just it's huge. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we've evolved to it obviously over decades and several different people and managers we've, yeah. we've, we've evolved to this over a long period of time and so it hasn't been all that drastic for us to but it to, to you know to look over the fence and say my god if i do that what's this going to take you know i think there might have been a little bit of emulation in the community but the timing wasn't right and the the uh, the uh end result was not was not great so you got to be careful too if you are going to go into something like this. Just how and when you do right. it. Well, there's that's where the the art comes in. Mm-hmm. It's more than just you woodenly applying some rigid practice. There's yeah, there's just there's daily decision making that goes into the in into where and when and uh, I mean when as in do we stay two days or four days, mm-hmm. etc. And how to lay fences out in a way that works with the landscape, works with livestock movement, mm-hmm. keeps animals healthy. One of the things that, that I've promised to do as part of this, the grant that's funding the podcast, which is through the Western Center for Risk Management Education, uh, is to do, is to talk a bit about how ranchers can, can tell their story to the rest of the world. Because I think that isn't told very well. Uh, do you guys have any ideas on on how ranchers that are doing things well can promote sustainable ranching to the non-agricultural public that sometimes doesn't think all that highly of livestock production? Well, I, Cooper's too modest, but I'll, I can I can I, I can say this, and he's he's he speaks a lot. He goes to several invitations mm-hmm. around and I think he does a magnificent job of explaining what we're doing and framing it in such a way that that it, uh, it has uh, relevance outside of agricultural circles. Mm-hmm. Um, I had the opportunity to talk at a water conference a year ago and, and um, talked about increasing soil carbon, which is what this is all about and you know how increasing soil carbon um, also accumulates water. And so the lack of rainfall we're, we're having now is being somewhat mitigated by 
mm-hmm. um, grazing systems, and, and that got people's attention. It, mm-hmm. it really did. But um, I think you know, Cooper does a lot of way more public speaking than I do, and I, I don't know how much of that is non-agricultural audiences. I think they're probably mostly agricultural. Uh, yeah, most mostly agriculture related conferences um but it that certainly is an issue i think and that's a weak link of there there aren't many voices and there really aren't many platforms for us to be heard and so you know there's some misinformation and and misunderstandings that certainly need to be um people need the opportunity to hear the other side of the story but and i think it's on each and every one of us ranchers and that's part of the responsibility that i was alluding to earlier of how it's multi-dimensional once you step into this role there's a lot of responsibilities that you have to shoulder yeah um and one of them is you, you know we ranchers are introverts by nature almost always and so the last thing we want to do is stand up in front of a room with a microphone in front of our face and yeah and tell and try to engage people in what's important to us or even worse to your own horn uh, yeah exactly and so that's uh but it's we we as ranchers need to be better about doing that and um you know the we have the ranch has a balanced scorecard, which is basically a, a a list of action items that that has measurable results that you can say yes, we hit this or no, we didn't at the end of the year, and all of those action items take us towards our vision as a family, and one of those action items is engaging the public in conservation dialogue. And so we as a family have, have looking at our, at our vision, which is a many generation family business with respect to land, water, wildlife, livestock, and people, um, that, a one aspect of, of making that vision come to life is engaging the public yeah. in conservation dialogue. And so once that was put on paper, that's when when I'd get invitations, it's like, okay, I got to go do this. Yeah. And the first few times was really difficult for me to say yes. Yeah. And it's, it's still hard because time, my time is so limited. And so there's always this prioritization of like, well, and valuation of like, well, what's this, what, what is this worth to us? You know, what's the pay, what's the payback? Um, And I don't know if there hasn't been a time for me personally, when I have been invited to one of those that I didn't think it was worth my time at the end of the day, because there is a real thirst to hear these stories and people are so receptive and they also have no idea. I was just spoke to a master hunter program two Sundays ago and um, they, it's the first time, and these are lifelong hunters. It's the first time a lot of them had ever even spoken to a landowner. Hmm. And they don't wow. even know what our perspective is like, you know? And that for this state, for Montana, um, there's a real, uh, there, there's, 
I would say, a misunderstanding in some aspects between sportsmen and landowners or maybe some miscommunication. And it was very glaringly obvious at the end of that mm-hmm. is one of the reasons why. It's because we, our voice isn't. We, right. Well, it's not that it isn't being heard. We aren't sharing our voice. Right. <clears throat> right. It's not at the table. It's not even, yeah, it's not even at the table. There's yeah. a really good... Uh, short documentary on Netflix called Kiss the Ground. I'm sure you've watched it. I've heard of it. I don't think I've seen it. It's a must. It's worth your time. It's uh, Ray Archuleta has uh, probably got the most airtime in it as anybody. Gabe Brown is featured as well. But um, I've recommended that to several urbanites, some of whom have watched it. Um, It's Excellent. It's the best piece I've ever seen on regenerative agriculture. It's uh, it's well explained. It's well done. It's it's um, not tedious. It's it's uh, I, I I just can't recommend it highly enough. Mm-hmm. Kiss the ground. Okay. Yeah, well, we can also put a link to that in the show notes for this episode. Uh, you mentioned hunters and the public. I was I wanted to just mentioned in passing that I think the artist and residency program is one good way of communicating, mm-hmm. you know, with people that are probably ordinarily, at least mildly antagonistic toward, toward <laughs> ranchers, you know, and you, somebody like that, that spends time at a place like this and changes their mind, they're going to talk to other people mm-hmm. uh, who may or may not change their mind, but it, it's a placeholder. But the other thing that that was making me think of is, I'm curious if you look for some other ways to generate revenue uh, on the ranch. You know, there's a lot of talk about agritourism, especially on uh, you know smaller places that are closer to an urban center uh, where that's potentially you know decent money. There's a lot of that's a whole different uh, skill set and workflow, you know, workload in trying to manage tourism, but. Uh, you know, a lot of ranches have have been successful in, uh, I guess, you know, selling access to the ranch, even if they can't directly sell licenses. Like in Washington State, you, know, you can't you can't sell an elk, but you can rent somebody access to your land, and you know they can use their elk license to go. Whereas in places like Texas, you know, you could I don't know what it is in Montana, but in Texas, you could say, yeah, you can come here and you know, for $500, you can kill a mule deer and you stay until you kill a mule deer. Uh, have you looked at any other ways of generating revenue uh, like hunting leases and agritourism? Soil carbon, not soil, timber carbon. Yeah. We've, we've uh, did a huge deal. Um, Meaning a carbon so, contract or so timber sold, harvest? We, no, we sold our uh, carbon contract. Yeah, we sold the uh, carbon sequestering ability of the forest on Seabin Livestock Company into the California compliance market. Mm-hmm. It's a one-time sale, and uh, we have maintenance costs that go forward for a very long time. It's a, it's a hundred-year commitment, which we did willingly, and it was worth our while. Um, and we looked into soil carbon, and uh, it's still got a ways. It's pretty nascent, um, right? You know, it's uh, but there there's potential for 
some potential for income there that that uh, you know could be capitalized upon at some point. But uh, the measurement, there's a lot of things that aren't aren't quite figured out with soil carbon yet. Right. And with the forested environment, most of the carbon storage is above ground where it can be measured and quantified. And so you can guarantee a certain amount of gain mm-hmm. with, yeah, with a rangeland ecosystem. Yeah. It's mostly below ground. Yeah. And what you'd be getting paid for is mostly yeah. not turning it loose rather than necessarily sinking more carbon. Yeah. Well, we're the forest is it's actually the carbon in the ground, but they can forecast it well based upon what's yeah. above the ground. Mm-hmm. And if you leave that in place above the ground, it's a pretty quantifiable certain Indicator. quantity that uh, you yeah. can actually that's actually tangible in a manner of in a manner of speaking. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's two things. Yeah, and there I mean there there's been a lot of ideas for agritourism and that's been kicked around for twenty years and continues to be kicked around. But really, it's um, someone would really have to want to do it, and yeah. Or we'd have to hire some, we'd want to have to do it enough to where we'd have to hire somebody. And my time is is really spent in fine-tuning these foundational blocks, getting these foundational blocks in place for mm-hmm. really the big engine that's going to drive everything else. And then maybe once those are in place and we'll start tackling some of these other ideas, but um, the right people would have to, would need to be on the bus in order for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're just, we're wanting to get uh, what we're doing currently dialed in and uh, get to where we're doing it well and predictably before, before we get that done, then without really the right person just showing, showing up and being a part of making that happen, uh, like an, an ag tourism deal, then, uh, it's not currently worth my time. Mm-hmm. We do <clears throat> some limited big game outfitting, and so there's some there's some income generated from that, but we don't have a desire to expand it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's possible; it would be possible to expand, right? We don't. We don't. That have would a also desire. require. A we don't have a desire to do it. Yeah. For multiple reasons, we won't go into. Yeah. Yeah, recreational access can be pretty two-edged sword. Difficult, yeah. Uh, maybe just to wrap things up, Ashley mentioned that your dad Cooper has a a book coming out soon. He does. Yeah, it's uh, getting published this month. What's that about? What's the book about? I'm I'm probably not going to get this right, but this is my memory. Not what the book is about, but it's a great story of how he got to writing this book. Mm. Was he um, twenty or more years ago? Dad was really fascinated by the civil war and um was reading a lot about this. i remember him reading about the civil war a lot and and then he was reading about stonewall jackson and then about stonewall's own troops who killed him by accident and then he started following those characters back in history and started he started writing about the civil war actually and he started following those characters back in history and it turns out that they'd served together in um, mm-hmm. the mormon war during when um, the secession when Utah tried to when Mormons tried to secede Utah from the Union or the territory from the Union and then before that to the Mexican-American War and then so 
this mm-hmm. book is about um, uh, the well. The backbone story is a volunteer Mormon battalion that marches from Iowa to San Diego, basically as recruits for the Mexican American war uh, with their families on foot. And they went with a company of dragoons of uh, the U S army's cavalry um, based. And it's a historical novel based on, on real people and true events. And I think he's changed the names, but it's fascinating. And then, his next book would then be about the Mormon War, and then the book after that would be the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And he's been working on this novel for fifteen years, okay. probably. Oh, so yeah. it's pretty, pretty huh. landmark moment for him. Yeah, I'll have to get a hold of that book. Yeah, it's going to be called Beyond the Rio Gila. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I've got a million more questions I could ask, and we could probably talk forever. But uh, you guys have given quite a bit of your time, and so I, I really grateful for your time and want to thank you again for uh, being willing to be interviewed and I look forward to continued conversation great thank you thank you Ted appreciate it thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast you can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode just search for Art of Range If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement. 